Hello and namaste. I'm Peter Furco, and this is Peter's Podcast, where we talk about real yoga, actual happiness, and deep living. Thanks for joining me. In 1963, Martin Luther King, whose memory we celebrate this week, said the following in his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington at the Lincoln Memorial. Five score years ago, a great American, in whose symbolic shadow we stand today, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. It is 55 years later still. I spent time this year talking about Colin Kaepernick, who is protesting the treatment of African Americans in the American system of government, business, policing, and culture. The response within the public to this stellar quarterback is mixed, but the response from his own industry is that Kaepernick is still effectively blacklisted by the NFL. This week, The New Yorker depicted Martin Luther King kneeling with Kaepernick during the national anthem. The artist who created the cover, Mark Ulrichson, said his inspiration was the question, what would King be doing if he were around today? I usually mark Martin Luther King Day by listening to the full I Have a Dream speech. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But for today, I thought I would play the words of another activist who puts racial concerns in language that I would think we would hear more often in yoga. He speaks about gaining greater perspective on what is going on in this relationship. Here is James Baldwin from the 1963 documentary, Take This Hammer. Well, I know this, and anyone who's ever tried to live knows this. So what you say about somebody else, you know, anybody else, reveals you. What I think of you as being... It's dictated by my own necessities, my own psychology, my own um, fears and desires. I'm not describing you when I talk about you. I'm describing me. Now, here in this country, we've got something called a nigger. It doesn't in such terms, I beg you to remark, exist in any other country in the world. We have invented the nigger. I didn't invent it. White people invented him. I've always known, I had to know by the time I was 17 years old. What you were describing was not me, and what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You had invented it, so it had to be something you were afraid of, and you invested me with. Now, that's so. No matter what you've done to me, I can say to you this, and I mean it. 
I know you can't do any more, and I've got nothing to lose. And I know, and I've always known. No. And really always. That's part of the agony. I've always known that I'm not a nigger. But if I am not the nigger, and if it's true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? I am not the victim here. I know one thing from another. And I know I'm going to born and I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I was born, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And the only way you get through a life is to know the worst things about it. I know that a person is more important than anything else. Anything else. I learned this because I've had to learn it. But you still think, I gather, that the nigger is necessary. Well, it's unnecessary to me, so it must be necessary to you. And I give you your problem back. You're the nigger, baby, it isn't me. This week, I headed to Midtown Manhattan to talk with Tice Buming. Tice is a scientist by profession, but he's also an avid yoga practitioner. To deepen his practice, he took 500 hours of teacher training at Ishta. I've always enjoyed hearing his take on the way yogis talk about items that cross over into science. I hope any teachers listening to the podcast will benefit from hearing how scientists might hear what we say in class. I started by asking Tice about what he does in his day job. Enjoy. I uh, am by training a chemist um, and a, a biophysicist. Uh, that's pretty general. My, my particular expertise is in the applications of computer science in uh, drug design, the discovery of novel therapeutics. So um, there is uh, a way in which you can understand the effects of medications on the body by understanding uh, the architecture of the targets of those medications and in most cases those are proteins so if you understand the structure of the protein that a, 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 a medicine binds to and, and mediates its effect through uh, in a three-dimensional way um, and if you understand the laws of physics that govern um, the interactions between molecules then you could say something about you could predict uh, to a certain degree of accuracy uh, the effects of a molecule in the body. Uh, that's that's one way of describing... So it's like a preliminary before you would do a trial. Yes, even before you make the molecule or test the molecule, you could say something about the potential effects of the molecule just by doing a computer simulation or a, a particular calculation. Hmm. Uh, another way of framing the field is that uh, the discovery of a molecule uh, that ends up being a drug involves the effort of hundreds, if not thousands, of people over the course of uh, between five and ten years. Um, and the synthesis of thousands of molecules that all have something in common, but only one of them has all of the necessary properties and mm. safety profile that becomes the drug. So you can imagine that something like that is intractable without the use of computer science. Mm -hmm. So informatics and simulations, just as it's being used in the aeronautical industry or the automotive industry or the banking industry, uh, the pharma industry also makes extensive use of, of informatics and simulations, and that's, uh, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And how many of the, like, of the things you test, like you might test some number and then something becomes then 
put into commercial production years down the road? What is the kind of uh, ratio of that? The ratio is extremely small. Um, it's kind of dispiriting. The, the The total number of people that physically contributed to the invention of a drug, you could probably fit them into a small auditorium. Uh, they'd be on the uh, a mid-sized auditorium, mm -hmm. probably in the order of a couple thousand people. Uh, there are not that many therapeutics out there. There's maybe two or three or four thousand um, molecules that are approved by the FDA. I don't know the exact number. Um, and uh, the vast majority of research that people do uh, in academia and in uh, an industry as well leads to absolutely nothing mm -hmm. uh, in terms of commercial value. Uh, in terms of scientific insights that might one lead some that one day lead to somebody else discovering something of commercial or therapeutic value, uh, perhaps a more a better way of saying it, um, that's obviously possible. But mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, you have to frame it a little bit differently. Um, how many of your predictions or your insights help a project move forward, right? So the way that we think about uh, a discovery project moving forward is we're trying to get optimized uh, properties of the molecule. So first of all, we're thinking about molecules in terms of potency, right? How well do they think do the thing that we really want them to do? Like how how much of the molecule do you need to kill a cancer cell, right? So the fewer molecules that you need, the better. So that, that, that's what we call a, high, a highly potent or highly active molecule. So we're trying to optimize for that. We try to optimize for other properties as well. For example, you could uh, uh, most molecules have to pass through the liver when you uh, when you take them in a in a pill form, and uh, you have uh, particular aspects of. Uh, properties of molecules that are highly conducive to absorption by the liver or metabolism by the liver and those it's need to be avoided. It. <laughs> yes, the liver the liver tries to filter out as much as it can. Right. Um, you need to avoid that. And medicinal chemistry is all about trying to fine-tune the properties of the molecules that it A doesn't get metabolized, B doesn't get uh, excreted, C gets to it where where it needs to be, so into the cell, D doesn't get metabolized into something toxic. Uh, it's an incredibly uh, complicated multi-parameter right. optimization problem. Right. Again, that's can benefit tremendously from from the computer from, model. From the computer model, yeah. Fascinating, yeah. Um, and do you remember when you did your te teacher training? I the did dates? my two hundred hours in two thousand fifteen, and my three hundred hours in two thousand sixteen. Mm -hmm. Great. What brought you to that? Um, I had been going to Ishta for years. Uh, my partner, she's a uh, teacher uh, at Ishta. And um, so I'd been doing yoga fairly regularly, uh, but not really um, at the level of, of, uh, of my partner or people that were doing a teacher training. And then um, I joined a retreat uh, with Mona Anand, who's a, a senior teacher now, a, a part owner of Ishta, and um, we went to India for a couple of weeks, and that was that was really a, a very deepening uh, and interesting experience, and that led me to to basically sign up for a 200-hour teacher training, and then afterwards I did a 300-hour as well. Yeah, uh, that was about uh, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, 
The, I, I wanted to talk to you today because one of the things that came up in your, during your training was this um, little bit of, I guess, a challenge. I'm not saying that you had a challenge or we had a challenge, but there was a challenge around the two worlds colliding of this scientific world meeting the philosophy world of yoga. And I found it to be such a fruitful uh, conversation that we struck up a number of times mm -hmm. about when we're dealing with yoga and the philosophy and cosmology and we're talking about the mind and the brain and all of this stuff, it very easily can move into the realm of talking about it as though it were science when it's philosophy and vice versa. And I know yoga teachers in America have a desire to speak about things from a scientific perspective because they believe it helps students buy it. You know, they yes. think it's a good uh, sales tool. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I mean, uh, the the notion of the science of yoga is not just uh, an Ishta thing or a modern Western yoga thing. I think uh, a lot of Indian um, yoga gurus will talk about the science of yoga. And I think what they mean is the systematic approach to understanding the mind and the body and the nature of reality through yoga. Um, and from system to systematic to science is, I suppose, a small step for for a philosopher. Um, it's a larger step for somebody who's you know more quantitative about these things. Right, right. And one of the one of the places that perhaps I stumble in that regard is I think about the empirical nature of things. That when one does something and observes it happening in a lot of people, to me that seems like it's science in the in the nineteenth century way. So that um, not necessarily. Yes. Things can be totally empirical and still be scientific as long as they're reproducible. That is, mm -hmm. uh, when I observe something empirically and you observe something empirically, we, are, we come to the same, well, not necessarily the same conclusions, but we know the same facts. Mm -hmm. um, that, that would be a scientific way of going about it. So there could be practices of yoga that one sees repeated routinely and many people can observe the same thing, and then that would fall yes. more in the science realm. That's correct. Certain yeah. particular poses uh, can benefit the lengthening or strengthening of particular types of muscles, mm -hmm. or can aggravate certain conditions, or can lead to deterioration of said joints, or all these types of things are uh, can be scientifically uh, rationalized or interpreted. Right. That's completely true. Right. Um, so you you mentioned systems versus um, science and without maybe getting too too bogged down do you is and you wrote a paper about this topic of applying science to yoga so I'm fishing mm -hmm. a little bit into what mm -hmm. you, you spoke about um, how would you characterize the way that you hear people talking about that system of yoga as though it were science or anything along those lines, some sort of like danger flags that go up where you said a quantitative person might uh, not so easily go there. Yeah, I, I think the main danger that I observe is that uh, there's this real desire 
of yoga practitioners to embed uh, yoga practice within the scientific realm that we live in or vice versa to bring scientific facts or knowledge into yoga yoga context and um, that's all fine um, but it's risky because uh, some in some cases there is very nice overlap and synergy and in some cases there's there's not and the, the fact about science is that you can't pick and choose your your facts right so if if you just only focus on those elements of science that are have have some tangential uh, agreement with what what is going on in a yoga practice uh, and ignore everything else that becomes and 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 be, if you're very selective in that way that's that's a very tricky thing right um just for fun because i think this is like the maybe like the magazine um survey component of this conversation like what are some things that you hear that make you go oh wait a minute what are what are you trying to say i, I it's particularly hard for me because uh i'm a scientist and i th- I associate particular terms uh, with particular physiological, physical events, right? So when people talk about energy um, in a in a yoga setting, um, energy of interaction between people, or the energy uh, of a particular movement or a particular thought, um, it's hard for me to accept that word because energy means different things to me. Energy, um, I think, what people mean in terms of yoga is is this thing called prana which can be translated as life force or 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 energy in many cases um it's it's a hard term for me to hear because energy to me means the relationship between mass and 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 light um it means the the, the e amount of mc squared for example anything. or the amount of uh energy that is is gained by digesting a particular nutrient and the the, the requirement of a living organism to 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 grow or and to uh, and to to sustain itself requires energy. That's metabolic like a calor- processes, a calorie, or for example, yeah, it, or it's actually called energy in some languages, right? And a calorie equals uh, calories are are the units of energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, as are kilojoules. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as people start talking about energy. Um, in some cases, they mean the same. In some cases, they mean something different, and it becomes it can become quite confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, another term that that uh, aggravates me a little bit is detoxification. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion of the body detoxifying itself is real. You have livers and kidneys that are constantly busy with, you know, filtering out toxins and excreting them and, and metabolizing them, um, and and they do a very fine job at that, uh, and that's completely independent of the way that you position your spine or twist or uh, your pelvis or, or massage. People talk about massaging your internal or- organs. That's something that uh, strikes me as completely bogus. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the liver, uh, all your internal organs are nicely embedded in a sac that provides uh, the body with protection, but also movement and and no and and. And the goal is to prevent you actually from pushing on those particular organs. So, um, they're they're kept in a even in a if safe you twist space. yourself into a pretzel. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah, rinsing out the spine, flushing out the the liver. Um, those are poetic, uh, metaphorical 
concepts. They have nothing to do with scientific reality, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Right. Um, so, hearing you describe that kind of thing um, makes one wonder, okay, so then what is it that you would want to hear, or what is it that you come to yoga for? Like, what is the attraction to you of doing this practice? It's obviously being done in a way that is bringing you some benefits, even though it's not being described particularly well from your perspective. Right. So, I mean, there are multiple, right? First of all is well-being, physical well-being, mental well-being. Uh, those are, that's my empirical fact that's promoted by yoga mm -hmm. uh, that works very well. Uh, I, I find yoga uh, a fun thing to do. Um, I get reward out of doing postures. I get... Uh, reward out of meditating I get I get um, reward out of the community uh, of yoga uh, at least you know the the people that I encounter that do yoga at Ishta or elsewhere uh, and ashram that I go to periodically I mean that's that's all that's all wonderful um, in terms of knowledge uh, I'm curious about the culture that produced this system of thinking right the mm -hmm. psychology the, the philosophy of it um who were these people um what was their background what was their worldview how did they uh discover all these correlations between uh the cosmos and the interior how did how did how did they come to all these conjectures about being uh that's very interesting to me mm -hmm. And now's the time we do ads. Ads for me, not for mattresses, not for delivery services, not for things that help you find your keys. All great stuff, but who needs to hear about that right now? But for me, retreats, going to the Caribbean, going to France, teacher training starts, lots of great stuff. You can find out about all of it on my website, peterfurco.com. Check it out. And then go to Patreon. We love Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Peter's Podcast. Please subscribe and support the information that you receive here. Thanks much. And thank you for listening. Namaste. So the, the, the parallels in terms of the cosmology and the, the energy that some of the things you described I've always found fascinating and I I try to avoid <clears throat> making something equivalent to something else right and yet I find that it's um, useful or it's at least uh, interesting it's a source of curiosity to look at the two as being in some kind of parallel relationship with each other. Like <clears throat> the Big Bang, um, when I hear physicists describe the Big Bang and, and matter going from nothing into everything, all the, the laws, all the matter, all the particle, all the energy exploding, it's very similar to some of the discussions in ancient yoga texts about right. this coming into being. And I would imagine that's kind of constant across many 
different thought processes, though I've not I've not studied all the different right. you know religions and whatnot. <clears throat> so it seems to me that it it at least suggests the possibility of uh, some kind of ability to know this stuff that we have a, a at least an intuition about it. Yeah, an intuition. I don't know what more or, you can say. I mean, if it helps you visualize a certain aspect of yoga uh, philosophy or yoga uh, cosmological thinking by equating this to uh, a Big Bang or a black hole or or some other level of physical theory, that's fine. Um, and I think it can be very graphical that way. Um, and nature... The nature of physics repeats itself. I mean, there, mm -hmm. there are physical laws that have, you know, based on symmetry, you'll find certain aspects of a particular symmetry in, that describes some physical process and another physical process. And it's not it's not completely unnatural to to find parallels between these processes. But uh, you have to be careful not mixing the two, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, they're illustrations of reality. They're models, uh, and if um, the, the comparisons only go that far in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. So to say, to qualify statements by saying it's an analogy or it's a metaphor or it's at least interesting, yeah, the, the parallels. I that's find, a safe I, way. You could say I find the correspondence between the notion of the Big Bang and the notion of Atman and Brahman. Uh, to be very compelling mm -hmm. and just leave it at that. Right. That's something to co contemplate. Right, I mean, right. That's at the end. That's what yoga is about. It's about contemplation. Right? Yeah, and and one of the one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you today is that I think for a lot of yoga teachers who maybe don't have a science background, I mean, some of them have a physiology background or something like that, or a right. massage background or whatever, but it it would be useful for them to hear through the ears of someone who might be in their class right. uh, who is kind of an analyzing a little bit more what right. is being said and trying to um, make it useful and not make it like I'd like to wear earplugs during class and just do the practices. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you do a pretty good job in your classes of finding those parallels and, and making clear where the boundaries lies, right? I mean, you had a very nice example of uh, how you could visualize sound waves in two dimensions or three dimensions using sand or using, I don't know what the material mm -hmm. was. Salt, I think. Salt, I think, yeah. And how how you could, and then you visualize sound as being energy. That's very correct. And then, you know, you do these mantras and the, these mantras produce particular vibrations. Obviously, they're, they're, they're vibrations of the vocal cords. And then in certain cases, you could, you know, block your ears or put your fingers in certain positions and then you could affect um, your brain or your head or your cranium or your skull in, in a certain way that ha that will have a physiological effect and therefore uh, uh, effect on your, your central nervous system as well. So just thinking about these things uh, can be very inspiring. That's not the same as being scientific and saying, no, this particular mantra will affect you in that particular way. Right. Be, that's because of this and this and that. Right. Uh, that's that's uh, that's a uh, that's a whole different uh, cup of tea. Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, one of the interesting things that I heard this past year was when I went to a science and yoga conference 
um, at the Long Island University in Brooklyn, and um, Eddie Stern, who's a um, Ashtanga teacher, had worked with some of the... Uh, I can't remember exactly who was in charge on the medical side over there, but had assembled a, a collection of scientists who'd been doing research on yoga, on meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them had been working in conjunction with Deepak Chopra and some uh, who's providing some funding so they could get together and have some conferences and do some studies of um, stuff that had not been studied before. And so it was interesting to hear these preliminary and, and pilot studies and some of the research like on the mindfulness-based stress reduction mm-hmm. has lots and lots and lots of studies. But one of the questions that came up at the end of the whole presentation of the day was in a Q&A, and uh, one of the researchers, and I, I forget his name right now, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, um, had discovered the non-embryonic stem cell in the liver. So was, that was his day job, <laughs> doing, doing that mm-hmm. kind of research. And yet he's a longtime meditator, and so he's been studying meditation and doing some work on this yoga realm as well. And someone asked at the end of the day, do you think we will ever find a machine, will there ever be invented a machine that actually allows you to see this prana, uh, to see the chakras, to have the experiences of that? And this researcher said, we are that machine, which was, I thought, an interesting way to say that we may never find it in the science realm. Right. But we can still have experiences of it. I think that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that can contemplate the mind is the mind itself, right? Uh-huh. I think that's what he was saying. The only way that you could analyze the concept of the chakra is, is by experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, you made the point about the the literature on on yoga and its effectiveness in and health and mental well-being and it's very encouraging that there is at least a, a, a literature starting to to emerge but you have to put it into context it's it's still very 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 small you're talking about at a, at a maximum maybe a thousand studies that yeah. have been performed i think um, there are three now <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, the the total number of citations in the biomedical literature that have something to say about yoga and physiology uh, is in the order of a thousand. Um, And to put that into the context of the total biomedical literature, which should be, if you you know, certain databases, we'll have maybe 20, 30 million uh, Uh papers submitted. So it's 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 a vast gulf between what we know about... Uh, yoga and what we know about Western medicine in terms of its effects on health. Um, but the proof is in the pudding, right? Many people do yoga and they don't do yoga because it makes them feel like crap. They mm-hmm. do it because it makes them feel better. So, mm, yeah, right. uh, again, that's an empirical observation. Right, right. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, let's see. So, um, you spoke a little bit about this. Uh, trip to India and um, that it was a interesting experience or it was a good experience to go on the retreat and then you decided to take teacher training after mm-hmm. that and um, so sp- speaking 
just as yourself like what what is it that you find you said you had a sense of well-being you like meditation can you speak a little bit more about that i think meditation is an area that um as you say the mind can contemplate the mind but it's a little bit harder place to talk so maybe uh what do you find about meditation that is valuable or what is your experiencing within it that keeps you going to it well it keeps me going is that i uh find it incredibly challenging first uh-huh. of all um it's 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 a hard thing to do um but it's valuable uh, i i like to start today uh doing a meditation that as opposed to what i used to do in the past is you know run to my coffee machine and check my emails and within 15 minutes be you know uh, uh firing on all cylinders uh-huh. um it, it has some values to so just you know starting the day a little bit slower and just you know, easing into it using some form of meditation um i find uh, doing rigorous physical exercise in the form of yoga but it can be something else as well and then meditating afterwards extremely uh pleasant so it just just feels good um i um you know it's very hard to um at least personally to take the time to analyze things through just sit and just let things go and ruminate you know about things that are going on in your life and that may not be what you know uh uh classical hatha yoga will will or um will uh define as meditation but it comes to me a little bit more naturally if i just sit and just let these thoughts come over me and just think them through and come to some conclusions that's just not possible if you're just running and working and even you know uh it's it's hard to find the time to do that so that's that's one reason why i meditate yeah it's interesting to hear you talk to because i think that when we started here i said a lot of teachers want to create a scientific description of what's going on here thinking that it's going to appeal to a western mind western practitioner yeah. but the way that you've just described the way that or the reasons that you like to do it are very straightforward they have nothing to do with science no, whatsoever i think i think there's a risk in trying to uh, merge the two disciplines the, the goal is to validate yoga uh, using science or validate our materialistic worldview by finding correspondence in yogic principles and i i it, the the way that it's done is usually quite trivial and trite and it requires simplifying or even dumbing down both Uh, disciplines in a way that just doesn't really it's not really productive and it's not really satisfying to me so um i see these things as lying at opposite ends of a spectrum um that's science as well. There's particular theories that apply only to one part of reality and other theories that apply to a completely different part of reality and they are completely incompatible with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, that happens all the time. That's the nature of, of models. Um, so just seeing science as a model of reality and yoga as another model of reality and both have their values is, is completely fine with me. I've been um, using that language a lot lately that the yoga model as a way of talking about the things that we do in yoga it's a philosophical or psychological model that's absolutely right and and having the 
the, the language that we have in yoga for describing certain things lets you talk about those things and makes uh, it almost like a road map to what you're going to do in the practice. Yeah. That you're going to have certain kinds of experiences. We're going to call them this and that and that. And then as you go through the practice, then as you're doing your practice and you're having your own experience, perhaps you'll notice that thing as like a signpost mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was there in our discussion. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. So um, what about providing, uh, if you would, if you would uh, a couple of more things that yoga teachers might watch out for when they say something, something that has a pretty specific meaning in the science realm um, that you've heard. You made the uh, mention of detoxification, that that's something the body is always doing anyway, and that there's not a lot of asana, certainly, that can do much in terms of detoxification. Yeah, except to maintain a, a, the body in its uh, healthy state. Yeah, there's a lot of cliches again thrown around. Like you hear the word homeostasis at least two or three times every yoga class. It seems mm -hmm. homeostasis is a metabolic process in which the organism maintains a steady state. Um, I don't know how relevant that is to to the notion of yoga as being in in in. In, in agreement with the world, I, I would I would use the word equilibrium or balance as a more um, moderate or modest way mm -hmm. of describing things. You know, mm -hmm. homeostasis sounds a little pretentious to me. Uh -huh. uh, energy, we already talked about talked about that. Um, so when we say prana, let's maybe we can tease that out a little bit. So when yogis talk about prana in the yoga model, yeah. and we're talking about some quality that is related to being alive yeah um i i sometimes use the example morose as it may be that you might have a body of someone who's dead um but they're on life support but they're no brain function whatever there there's but there's still the functions of living but there's certainly a distinction yes and so sometimes they use that as a sort of a Again, one of these parallel notions that yeah. prana is I mean, something about the that. difference is brain activity, right? So, mm -hmm. if you want to equate prana to brain activity, that's I mean, that would be a scientific logical <laughs> uh, extrapolation. Um, yeah, I mean, we use the word energy quite freely too. You feel energetic or an energetic right. person, right? It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. I often uh, think of it as feeling. What yeah. does one feel exactly? Yeah. So it's a, it's a personal notion, a personal experience. Um, and you could perceive that in other person, other, other people, right? Someone, some, somebody strikes you as a particular energetic or you feel a particular connection with another person or, or a bad vibe or, you know, uh, that's something that um, is often explained in terms of energy as well, like I get a bad energy from this person right. or a good energy from and this person. And there are people who have sort of extrasensory perceptions of other people, that they can know things about them or if they see light or something about them. That's, of course, 
Yeah, I don't think it has anything to do with the person that is being observed, but rather that by has any, everything to do with the person that is observing. Uh, but that's a whole different mm-hmm. discussion mm-hmm. that I don't know much about. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah another uh, word. Healing is another healing. Uh, healing is another word that that I find slippery. Um, the healing aspects of a particular yoga practice. Or uh, healing effects of sound, or the healing effects of essential oils. You know, it's it's all. It, it, you have to take it with a grain of salt, in my opinion. Healing is, uh, in Western medical terms, uh, being cured from a disease, uh, and that's something that is uh, clearly defined but hard to measure. Um, it, re- it requires. Uh, knowledge of the disease it requires you know studying into many different people um, the healing effects of you know something is it's very hard to define so when I when when people start talking about healing I, I quickly tune out whether that's fair or not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it um, it's conceivable that using any kind of a practice might might bring about healing but to say it as a blanket statement that this is a he- this is healing yeah. from a science scientist point of view is like well where's the data that maybe that app worked for yeah. you but it's not necessarily one, true one one um, notable example that you hear a lot is the effects of certain po- uh, poses on glands right so mm-hmm. people talk about fish pose uh, or or shoulder stand as having a beneficial effect on the thyroid gland. Mm-hmm. Um, it's completely unknown to me what that is based on other than just the fact that you're contracting muscles in the proximity of that gland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if it in fact is beneficial, I would be wonderful, but I have yet to see any evidence. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's just based on hearsay, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody a uh, hundred years ago said something to that effect or hypothesized that or dreamed something up and then it just, becomes this i mean it's almost like a myth mm-hmm. uh a yoga myth that then is perpetuated in, in 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 into today's yoga classes without any further thought about what it actually means or whether this is true or not and that's maybe a really good um a method for a teacher to think about like if you hear something um rather than just repeating it because you heard some other teacher say it do some investigation. Yeah, but is, that's not the nature of yoga. And the nature <clears throat> of yoga is acceptance and trust and belief. And that's completely contrary to the scientific method. I mean, if I attend a scientific presentation, I'm my outset is deeply skeptical. Mm-hmm. Like, this can't be true, this can't be true, this can't be true. You know, never never accept anything at face value. There, there, there are so many ways in which things can go wrong or things are red herrings or, um, you know, uh, uh, correlations without any causation it's it's it happens all the time i'm guilty of it as well in my own work so you have to be extremely vigilant and that vigilance is just not possible in a yoga setting it mm-hmm. has to be about uh you know uh whatever uh the book says or the theory says or the guru says that's taking taken at face value without mm-hmm. with any without any criticism so if you want to distinguish yoga uh, from science that's that's another major major point to make mm-hmm. 
So any other words that strike you when you hear them or other ways of describing things that could be either eliminated or said in a better way? Uh, the, the, those are the major ones, I suppose. Um, I'll, we'll add a note to the to the program if I ever find another one in your <laughs> class. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I did some research on the Internet about what people find irritating and detoxification and energy based those are the big those are the big ones uh-huh. yeah well cool um great well i i've found it very fascinating that um you've been such a diligent practitioner and relatively diligent <laughs> uh, well i see you at arena's class every saturday so yeah, yeah. um and i'm glad that yoga is uh, a valuable part of your life and i think that's inspiring to people too and it should i hope that it's inspiring to yoga teachers to hear that they don't need to worry so much about uh being so logical about it if they just can frame what they're talking about within the yoga model and yeah not, i mean there's certain reach. aspects of, of of yoga that can really benefit from scientific rigor i mean um, the, f- the purely physiological effects of asanas on muscles and bones and 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 the interpretation of human anatomy uh, in terms of recommendations for yoga posture is something that is done very very carefully at Ishta, which I greatly appreciate, is definitely scientific. Um, so in that respect, uh, there there is definitely value. Uh, you don't have to be that careful about talking about science when you talk about anatomy right um it's when things become more metaphysical that right you know, when you're talking about mus- muscular skeletal exactly that's more clear-cut yeah or purely physiological heart rate blood pressure mm-hmm. um those things can be affected by by exercise obviously mm-hmm. and yoga there's a large exercise component to it so and even the shoulder stand might turn out to be helpful for the gland but we need to do research before we can say that with any kind of authority yes that's <laughs> correct my my gut feeling would be uh there's no effect on the gland but yes uh i don't have any proof one way or the other right but. right and that's the good point too that when there's no proof one way or another you're just speculating as a teacher that's correct yeah, yeah. well thank you tice this has been very useful Thank you, Peter. I appreciate the invitation. It was it was nice to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see you around the yoga studio. Absolutely. All right. Namaste. Namaste. Stop the presses. Stop the presses. This just in. We're going to do Peter's podcast live with Mona Anand at Ishta Yoga, February 15th. Save the date. Details coming soon. Cool. That's today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Check me out on patreon.com slash peterspodcast. Namaste.